If you're familiar with Bubblegum Troll, Misty, Otis, and Mr. Yeti, and you know the difference between Biscuit Bungalow and Marshmallow Mountains, you might be one of the 300 million or so monthly active players of Candy Crush Saga, Activision's blockbuster mobile gaming app. According to mobile analytics firm Flurry, U.S. consumers spend up to five hours per day on their mobile devices, and 11% of that time is devoted to gaming. That translates to just over 1 billion hours of gaming each month. Nearly two-thirds of the population play video games, but unlike console-based games, which skew decidedly young and male, the majority of mobile gamers are women spanning generations from Gen X to baby boomers. Oh, and by the way, they're the same group that controls two-thirds of consumer spending in American households. So just what does it take to capture the devotion of a fickle fan base in this fiercely competitive industry? Today we'll hear from Professor Jeffrey Rayport about his case entitled King Digital Entertainment. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Jeffrey Rayport is an expert in online media and e-commerce with a focus on new business opportunities enabled by emerging digital technologies. He's also on the faculty here at Harvard Business School. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Brian. I am going to admit off the bat that I am not a mobile gamer. Uh, but I do walk around and I, I, I observe people everywhere I go staring at their phones. It doesn't matter what they're doing. They could be crossing the street, driving. They're staring at their phones. And I suspect many of them may be playing games of one kind or another. So I don't know. Do you, are, you, are you a mobile gamer just at the outset? Can we? Can I, th we I think we can dispense with that. I'm definitely not a mobile gamer. Great. I don't fit the demographic at all. So we're part of the minority, I guess, uh, according uh, to those apparently. statistics. Yeah. Yes, apparently so. I, I enjoyed the case a lot. And, uh, you know, uh, I act it actually did prompt me to download uh, Candy Crush Saga just so I could be a little more informed about that game. But uh, maybe we can start simply by can you tell us uh, who's the protagonist in this case and what's on their mind? So the protagonist is a, a, a very interesting Italian guy named Riccardo Zacconi, who lives in London, is an expat there, started the company there way back when, almost 15 years ago, as a company called Midas Player. Midas Player evolved in its early years on the brink of bankruptcy to become King Digital Entertainment. King Digital Entertainment, as you just said, uh, was an interesting attempt to create games, but in a very different world from the one you just described, mm -hmm. meaning it started in that first generation of web portals 15 years ago, moved on to the social networks for the rise of first MySpace and then Facebook, and then ultimately made the pivot to the mobile space, to mobile casual gaming, which is where it developed the blockbuster Candy Crush, which put the company on the map. Yeah, and mobile casual gaming is the term that they use for that. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that that whole landscape later. But so how, how did you hear about, about this? So this is kind of the world that you live in. But so tell me, what prompted you to write the case? So I met Ricardo Zacconi in the context of a tech founders conference that meets in London every year called Founders Forum. And he was a guy who'd been at it for some time, had clearly captured lightning in a bottle. And maybe the most dramatic thing was it was hard not to know him because at the time that King Digital Entertainment went public in London, it was the largest tech IPO in history for that financial market. 
Uh, it was a controversial IPO because it traded down on the very day it debuted. At the same time, it established between a six and seven billion dollar market cap for a company in a space that very few people understood. So, tell us about that space. So, this is we mentioned referenced it before online casual gaming. Uh, this was a pretty fierce business. Very fierce, and and in in a way, a business that defies it would appear all economic logic from the outside. And what I mean by that is that. You know, the gaming industry is huge. I mean, it's a $100 billion global industry today, which to put that in perspective is about five times the size of Hollywood as an industry. Wow. So it's a, a massive industry, but it's driven by companies like Activision Blizzard and Electronic Arts, who are so-called game publishers. Game publishers make big, expensive editions that used to be sold as shrink-wrapped software off shelves. Now it's obviously digital download, but they were designed to be played on either consoles like Xbox or Sony PlayStation or Nintendo or to be played on PCs. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could establish a casual gaming franchise, let alone, let alone casual mobile, was entirely counterintuitive to the industry for a very important business reason. Whereas EA and Activision are able to charge a lot of money for that big game, Call of Duty, Halo, obviously big hits like that. Yeah. Um, mobile casual games are free. And they're not only free, but you can play them to, to a fairly well. You move up through every single level in the game without ever spending a dime. So this idea that you take a high commitment product with a big upfront retail purchase price and turn it into freeware, which is designed to be info snacking entertainment as yeah. the lingo goes using smartphone mobile devices, that is uh, defies economic logic for the simple reason that you know, the conventional, the industry looked at that and said, I get it that you might get viral uptake for a hit game. What I don't get is how you could build a profit model. Yeah, so how, so how do they make money? So a lot of people in the online space talk about the freemium model in which you build very, very large audiences of free users and you offer them, as we all know, as users of Dropbox and other services, an opportunity to upgrade to some kind of pro version, which allows you to get either more memory or more functionality, a more robust version of the streaming offer as a software service. And the question then becomes for that pro version, what does a pro version look like in mm. a mobile and casual space? So in this industry, freemium is called free to play. Literally, you are free to use and sample and consume the entire product. But if you want certain benefits associated with play, either up-level your presence in the game, uh, buy more game time, uh, acquire enhancements, in obviously battle-oriented games, these are weapons. In these oriented games, it's actually just an advantage in gameplay that you're acquiring. You spend money inside the game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So King has this fascinating model, where as you said at the outset, 300 million people play Candy Crush every month. Uh, roughly speaking, about a half a billion play King's games. King has a portfolio of 180 mo mobile casual games. Uh, daily active users, so showing up in a 24-hour time period, between 200 and 250 million for all of King's games. The issue then becomes, if you've got a quarter billion people showing up playing free, how do you convert some percentage of them based on a high level of game engagement such that they want to access additional benefits inside the gaming environment and spend hard dollars against that?
Yeah, and and King found some interesting ways to do this. And I want to go back to the topic of women being um, sort of the antithesis to the console-based games, which is mostly young men. Um, these games have really found a, a, an audience of women that like to play them and are enthusiastic participants. How did King take advantage of that? In effect, King did what we talk about in our classrooms, which is that one way to compete in business is go figure out who the rival firms are and, and outdo them. But maybe the more clever way to do it is actually find competitive white space in the market and go dominate it. King essentially recognized that when games moved from originally the web portals to the social platforms to mobile devices, what was happening was that the actual audience composition on the mobile platform would be fundamentally different. And it would be fundamentally different, especially from the world of PCs and consoles. So they, in effect, developed a new market by making these games sufficiently magnetic for people who wanted to pay, play only a few minutes a day mm -hmm. in little short bursts in the interstices of the lives they were living otherwise. So this was not high-commitment appointment television. It was actually, I'm waiting for a bus, I'm getting on a train, I'm standing in the grocery line, I've got 45 seconds where I can play a game like this. It turned out that the people who had that, if you will, interstitial time in great abundance was a middle-aged female audience owning smartphones and looking for ways to fill in those gaps in their lives with interesting, challenging, stimulating activity. Yeah, and there was uh, obviously sufficient level of addictiveness to these games where you could shut it off and go right back to it and sort of pick it up where you left off. So, Yes, they, they Ricardo describes these games as easy to play but hard to master. Yeah. So they, they appealed to certain aspirational tendencies in the players, which is it wasn't just enough to be entertained. Everyone wants to go somewhere in the course of any experience, and usually it's up and to the right. It's greater mastery, but yeah. the greater mastery did not come easily. The rapid growth that King experienced was astonishing to read about. Um, and I'm just curious, what kind of a leader is able to help an organization scale to that extent? What were some of the challenges they encountered along the way? For us, the most interesting aspect of all this, you know, we framed the case around the question of should he sell the company to Activision? And so, spoiler alert, he did sell the company. Yeah. The price tag was $6 billion. It was a munificent exit. And, of course, there's some tension around that because... Uh, many people would look at a multi-billion dollar exit and say, well, isn't it pretty obvious that the answer is going to be yes? On the other hand, the tech world is filled with examples and counterexamples of companies that either sold just in the nick of time before their valuation imploded or sold too early. Think of YouTube to Google in 2006 for $1.7 billion. If YouTube were a standalone media company today, it'd be worth about $70 billion. Wow. Think about Instagram and the sale to Facebook for about a billion dollars. Standalone today, $35, $40 billion market cap company. So the question here was, could Ricardo continue to scale this company as effectively as he had done, as you say, through this astronomical pace of growth? Or was now the time, in effect, to take some chips off the table. Yeah. And and what's the, so how do you land on a candy crush, I guess? That's the other question that's addressed in the case is, how many ideas do you have to generate to get to that one that's going to have the magic ingredient that Candy Crush had? Well, it's a, it is an absolutely great question, maybe the critical question, because certainly my first attraction to this business was the fact that by anyone's standard definition, this is a creative business. Gaming, like Hollywood, belongs in the creative industries. And so the question, whenever you're trying to do creativity at scale, is that perhaps very business school-like query, 
can you industrialize creative processes? Mm. Can you engineer art? Can you take creative people and produce more or less predictable outcomes, meaning create a hit machine like the Warner Studio system in the 1930s and 40s or the focus on sequels of blockbusters, et cetera, in Hollywood today? The thing that's fascinating about this company was that they started in a small market, but a market, as you know, Brian, that is rife with talent for building gaming companies, which is Scandinavia, in this case in Stockholm. But the minute they began to grow from 5 to 10 to 15, 20 gaming franchises, the question is, could a single creative studio actually scale to manage a portfolio of 180 games, especially when one of them is a mammoth hit like Candy Crush? What the company demonstrated is that there are certain hotspots around the world that have a finite amount of human talent, literally a finite number of people who, even if you could hire everyone with game-creating talent or the kind of creativity that goes into an entertainment business like this, you'd actually max out the market. And what they discovered was that first in Stockholm, and then in Malmo, and then in London, and then in Barcelona and Berlin, and then in Seattle and Singapore, they basically moved to a, a massively parallel processing system of game studios operating side by side in different theaters of the world. They're essentially running the experiments that your question implied, meaning if you've got 80 to 90 people in seven different studios in every time zone of the world working in parallel to come up with new ideas, and you have an environment in which half a billion human beings show up every month to play your games. By introducing that audience to new games, engaging in cross-promotion, awareness building, fueling virality among players, you have a massive base of, in a sense, human factors in your experiment to tell you whether an idea has legs or it doesn't. Yeah. And so in a way, for us, the, the biggest insight here was one this industrialization of creativity and the parallel processing that the multiple game studios implied. But the other is that nothing this company does is, if you will, based on right brain intuition so much as it, everything is measurable, everything is susceptible to analysis, mm -hmm. everything is, in effect, a data analytics challenge to identify that one winner out of a thousand losers and put resources behind that game. Yeah. Now, I assume you met with Ricardo in the in the writing of this case. We met with him several times in London yeah. in the course what's, of this case. I'm just curious, what's what is his leadership style? Sort of, what is what is he like? The fascinating thing is that he's an immensely analytic guy. I mean, he has an MBA before becoming an entrepreneur. Was a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, every single person across 15 or 20 top executive leadership jobs in King, leading a workforce of a couple thousand people, again, entertainment industry business, there is not a single one of those executive leaders who doesn't have a background in economics, control, accounting, analytics, consulting, including Sebastian Knudsen, who is the chief creative officer at King, who if you check his education, which we pr provided as a convenient exhibit in the case study, seeing executive bios, a standard thing, it is quite striking. He was trained in accounting and control. Yeah. So it is for us. It's not us, what you'd expect from a company that has a game called Candy Crush Saga. It's a 
Not at all. I mean, and, and you could then argue that these guys are brilliant at building addiction for this new-to-gaming audience of female gamers because they are, like all of the big tech platforms at Silicon Valley, they've taken an intensely analytic approach to optimizing gameplay and game experience to build addiction with these properties over time. Yeah, yeah. Have you discussed the case in class? We have uh, done it in class. We've done it with groups of uh, alums. Actually, I most recently uh, taught it to a group of 150 alums at an HBS gathering in Berlin, which was fascinating. Yeah, I'm curious uh, what kind of reaction you get. And I'm interested, interested actually in, in how MBA students think about this case versus how executives in, in the executive education program or alumni might think about it. Well, it's certainly true that whether we're dealing, in my experience, whether dealing with MBA students or executives, the first, the knee-jerk reaction to this is, how could this business be so valuable? And by the way, because it's free to play, how do I convince myself through analysis of the case that there's actually a business story here at all? Yeah. It is a remarkable thing to think about Activision writing a $6 billion check for this business, because to put that number in perspective, that's 50% more than Disney paid for Lucasfilm, which owns the Star Wars franchise. It's amazing. So it's an amazing achievement in terms of the creation of value. But the thing that is, is fascinating, and I guess has become the crux of the discussions with both students and executives, is the realization that what drives this model is that a very small percentage of those hundreds of millions of free-to-play players do convert to becoming paying customers. The number is between 3 and 4% from the data we were able to glean in putting the case study together. The mind-blowing thing is that of those 4% on the 500 million who've converted into paying customers, they spend on average $17.32 a month inside the game. So understanding that has been the source of great fascination, especially for the MBA audiences, because the question is, all right, so then what ultimately controls both revenue, productivity, and profitability in the business? It all has to do with this issue of at what rate, what percentage across a total vast population base of humans who are engaged, at what rate do you convert to paying users, and how long can you keep them around in that high engagement mode? I think I'm going to have to start uh, playing online casual games. I've got, to, I've got to get involved in this now. I'm on my way to becoming addicted. I just can't <laughs> claim that I'm there yet. There we go. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Brian, it's been a real pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Cold Call, please subscribe on iTunes for more cases like this one. And while you're there, please write a review. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you've been listening to Cold Call.